The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Good Friday morning. Welcome to Money Movers. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Leslie Picker, live on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Sarah's off today. Quote, the market is cheap. The spokes Paul Hickey on names to possibly target in and outside of tech. Then the co-owner of the Boston Celtics and former co-chair of Bain Capital. A look at the AI company Steve Pagliuca is backing. Plus, how he's thinking about the price of megastars in sports as the Dodgers spend another $325 million. Finally, Nike is plunging after slashing its sales outlook. We're going to break down that move this morning. Uh, but right now, Dow is basically at the flat line, up about a point. NASDAQ up 0.2% and the S&P about the same kind of moves. Tenure uh, at around 3.9% on this Friday before the holiday weekend. Speaking of which, topping the tape for this morning, a lower than expected inflation print. A PCE comes in up 3.2 year on year, month on month, rising a tenth of a percent, which was even with estimates. Core PCE roughly in line with the Fed's broad inflation target on a six-month basis. What does that mean for the year-end rally? Let's bring in CNBC senior markets commentator Mike Santoli got to watch the calendar, too, as for a lot of people, this will be maybe one of the final trading days of the year. Yeah, uh, you, that's true. <laughs> you would think that uh, the books are starting to close in sequence here to some degree. Um, but I think you view today's number as kind of further confirmation of the working premise of most investors, what's gotten us here after six weeks of rally, uh, which is the disinflation has downside momentum. Powell kind of told you this was going to be a soft number. It came in pretty much on cue. The three and six month averages, all very encouraging. And I think it does allow people to just sort of rest a little bit on this assumption that the economy can hang in there, the Fed can get easier because inflation's giving them that flexibility. Does the somewhat muted reaction to you say that a lot of this is already priced in at this point? To a fair degree. I mean, I don't know if we have have a full quorum here uh, in terms of reacting to news. But I do think it's because if you look at what the bond market's already done in the last couple of months and just, you know, uh, the six month low and two year yields pricing in the cuts next year, this was kind of part of that story. And we just got the ratification of it. So I, I guess that is uh, a suggestion that people have largely positioned for something like this. I think it's interesting because you have to have these two contrasting views, which is markets come a long way in a short period of time in six weeks. The majority of stocks have put in their entire year since November 1st. You have the equal weighted S&P up more than 10% on the year, and it's all happened since then. That being said, you have the too far, too fast short-term idea. On the other hand, the S&P is exactly where it was two years ago. Two years ago, we had a massive Fed tightening cycle ahead of us. We still had a huge inflation problem. And earnings were, you know, 10, 15 percent lower. The economy is 15 percent smaller. Huh. So you, you haven't necessarily gotten the market to a place where it's so far uh, ahead of reality. What about the micro worries, FedEx, General Mills, yeah. Nike? We mentioned that today, along with the idea that today's number was so soft that you might be looking for the Fed to arrest an undershoot down the road. It is a little sloppy in terms of the corporate um, commentary. And I guess just maybe there are signs of consumer fatigue. I don't think that's that's sort of incompatible with let's let's recall, even if the economy is resilient, it's a slow growth economy. You know, we're decelerating down to some kind of 
relatively muted <laughs> only, rate. Only 2.8. Well, only 2.8 maybe right now, but maybe it's kind of trending, and the consumer component of that might not be as strong. So I, I guess you have to be attentive to it, and, and margins obviously get a little squishy in here. But uh, in terms of the source of where the projected earnings growth is supposed to come from, in, in 2024, back and loaded as it often looks, it's not so reliant on the consumer being very free spending at this point. Hmm. Mike, thanks. We'll talk in a little while. Uh, Mike Santoli, it's a perfect place to begin with our next guest, Fidelity's Director of Macro, Urian Timmer, joins us this morning. Urian, happy holidays. Good to see you. Happy holidays to you as well. Uh, what a day to have you on. Uh, as you write, uh, Santa has delivered the goods. Uh, reflections on today's numbers. Yeah, it's uh, it's just amazing what a year it's been. And if there's anything we can learn from it, it's just how little we really know, you know. So maybe that's a New Year's resolution is to have uh, some humility <laughs> going into next year for all of us trying to, you know, read, read the tea leaves because we were coming into the year uh, worrying about a recession, of course, that, that very obvious yield curve signal, you know, staring us in the face. And then in the summer, we were worried about, you know, soaring interest rates and fiscal dominance and who's going to buy buy the debt and will there be failed auctions, et cetera. And here, you know, the the 10-year yields down back down below four. And um, we've got some very good numbers uh, out of the economy. The Fed apparently has pivoted. And so, you know, if if the range of outcomes is a, is a bell-shaped curve, right, with with the the bell, the the middle part being uh, Goldilocks, you know, w- wearing a Santa hat uh, right now, um, and then on the left, uh, recession, and on the right, you know, higher interest rates and inflation, we've navigated that entire curve this year, and we're landing right on the middle. And my guess is we're going to do some version of this again next year. Do you nitpick at some of these? I mean, I would say ebullient forecasts for next year that look at the dynamics between prices and wages and the way in which the consumer, uh, the American household, is going to benefit from uh, from a decline in price and with their wages fairly steady? Well, there are certainly some really positive signals, which I think have negated the yield curve uh, inversion, you know, this year. One of them, of course, is that a large chunk of the economy, you know, has locked in low rates. I mean, the average mortgage rate is is below 4%. So so the average typical American has a mortgage of less than 4 even though interest rates are a lot higher. And then another component, you know, as you point out, in, in the labor market, and, and you know, my, my friend Barry Bannister of Stiefel has done some really brilliant work on this, but the the you know we're we're working on the excess of labor demand. Um, uh, we're drawing down on that, and you can see that in, in in the Jolts report. But it came from such a high level that what normally would have triggered a mild recession is happening in an expansion. And I mean, and that is really a hat trick, you know, for for the Fed between those two factors. That maybe you can take some of the edge off of an overheating economy without. Creating a recession, whether that actually continues into next year, you know, remains to remains to be seen, of course. But uh, but there are certainly some really positive signs. But on the other hand, there, you know, a lot of this I think is priced in. You know, the forward PE on the S and P 500 is 21. It was 15 uh, 14 months ago at that low. On the S and P equal weighted, it's a little better. It's about 17 and a half. Um, but that's a pretty big multiple expansion um, and uh, in anticipation of, of an earnings you know, pivot. And that pivot is happening, but a lot of that is priced in. And, and you know, one other factor that I think maybe we should think about is 
Obviously, this has been a very lopsided leadership, the Magnificent Seven, et cetera, which are about 30% of the index. Uh, the market is now broadening, which is something I would like to see, and that's been my main caveat all year to not being more constructive is that, you know, I want to see a broader tape. Um, but what would a rotation look like if uh, people, investors, rotate out of those Magnificent Seven into everything else? What does the old, I, I know what it would look like under the hood, but what would the top line kind of index performance look like? And that's another thing that I, I think we will find out next year. Given that uh, worldview, how are you positioning or how are you recommending investors position in terms of al asset allocation next year? The biggest flow winner of 2023 is cash, which pulled in a staggering $1.34 trillion. Uh, but other asset classes benefited as well, $177 billion into government bonds. Uh, Investment-grade bonds also took in some capital and, of course, $150 billion into equities, according to Bank of America. So do you see a lot of that cash moving increasingly into the market in 2024, or do you think it'll kind of take some time for this new potential pivot to work its way through more capital moving into other areas away from cash? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you, you mentioned the cash, because I often see um, folks on, on social media point out, you know, the mountain of cash. And um, it really is not a mountain of cash once you normalize it for the market capitalization of the stock market. So I follow this. Obviously, we're, we're a big player in the money market industry. But I, I just look at money market fund assets relative to market cap. And it's around 11.5%. And that's fairly typical. Like at, at major bottoms, it, it spikes up to 17 18%. At major tops, maybe it goes below 10 But even though $5.7 is a lot of money sitting in there, my guess is that a good chunk of that came from the banks, of course, because banks have been offering a lot lower rates on their deposits. And so it's not necessarily a fear or greed index this time around. Um, but money has obviously been moving into cash. Um, bonds were largely shunned this year. Uh, but the, the reversal you know, in rates has been pretty stunning. I mean, the two-year yield is, is already now in, in, the, in the low fours. Um, so a, a pretty amazing recovery. But when I look at the landscape for next year, you know, I've, I've always warned against cash because it can be fleeting. You know, that nice 5% uh, rate that you get can be gone tomorrow if the Fed starts cutting rates. Uh, the middle part of the bond market has been really the sweet spot, two to 10 years, uh, because a Fed pivot would get you both the yield and some, some capital gains. The long end, you know, you worry about term premia and fiscal dominance and what that's going to mean down the road. Uh, but, you know, bonds were, were kind of the most compelling part of the asset class spectrum a few months ago, and now they're becoming a lot less so, and cash is becoming a lot less so. And so really, when I think about what is the low-hanging fruit here, it's the stocks that have not participated um, in uh, over the last 14 months of gains in the index. So again, you look at the S&P 500 equal weighted index instead of the cap weighted index, that is still in a range that is now two years old. You know, it's very unusual for a market to be in a range that long. And if you zoom out, if you happen to have the, that, that chart in front of you, you zoom out, you see a stair-step pattern, right? Strong gains followed by consolidations, followed by strong gains. Market goes up two-thirds of the time. 
um, and we've now had a two-year consolidation. And so even if I know nothing else, and, and I don't know much else, um, <laughs> if I just look at the market math uh, and the odds of what the market tends to do, and I look at that two-year consolidation, my sense is that 2024 is going to be a bullish broadening. So that, that chart is going to resume uh, the prevailing trend, which, of course, for the stock market tends to be higher. And we are going to see a broadening. Uh, and that's my, my sense, because that vice of higher rates that has been weighing on smaller companies, companies with maybe uh, weak balance sheets that have to refinance debt, all of a sudden that weights that weight gets lifted. And that really is one of the 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 silver linings here of, you know, if you think, oh my God, I missed this move because the index is already back at the all-time highs, uh, that really has been dominated by a handful of stocks. And in the meantime, there's many, many other stocks that are still in the bottom half of their range that are, I think, waiting to wake up basically. Yeah. We're going to be obviously watching closely for signs of that broadening uh, and that stair step in 24. Urian, uh, if I don't talk to you, happy holidays. Great to see you again. Thank you very much. Same to you. Urian Timmer. After the break, boss, uh, Boston Celtics co-owner and Pags Group CEO and founder Steve Pavlioka on the opportunities in AI, plus a look at growing sports contracts as the Dodgers shell out another $325 million for their latest star. We will get to Nike plunging double digits on pace for the worst day since September of last year, uh, even despite some improving inventory numbers. Money Movers will be right back. You haven't heard about the McCrispy yet. Well, then, you probably haven't heard the sweet silence after the first crispy bite either. Go try it for yourself to hear the best not sound you've ever heard. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Check out shares of Nike today. Shares are getting crushed after slashing its sales outlook. Now expecting full-year revenue to grow just 1% compared to the prior guidance of mid-single digits. CFO Matthew Friend blamed the slowdown on some macro headwinds in China and Europe, and some weakness in digital traffic abroad. Nike is also instituting a $2 billion cost-cutting plan over the next three years, restructuring some comp. We'll see how much of that gets realized uh, in, the, in the year to come. Just a remarkable move in Nike today. Obviously, a huge run-up leading into the print, but uh, nonetheless, uh, one of the worst days of performance in quite some time. Our next guest is looking beyond ChatGPT for the next advancement in AI, leading a seed round in Liquid AI earlier this month alongside early Facebook investor Jim Breyer and the co-founders of GitHub, Spotify, and Red Hat. The MIT project turned startup is focused on making its AI models to have a better impact on the environment. Joining us with his outlook for AI investing in 2024 and the state of private equity, Bain Capital Senior Advisor, PAGS Group CEO, founder, and Boston Celtics co-owner, quite the resume, Steve Pagliuca. Steve stepped down as Bain Capital's chairman this past January after seven years at the helm. Steve, thank you for being here. Uh, let's start with AI. Uh, Liquid AI, this is a 
neural network approach as opposed to more server intensive as, as we've seen with the likes of ChatGPT and others. Can you explain how this technology is different than, I would say, what we're used to, but it's really only been about a year of this technology and what it all means for cost as well as carbon footprint? Well, Leslie, I think that's a good point, and, and, and we're probably used to nothing yet since this is all brand new. Uh, this is harks back to the days of the Internet in 1999, uh, but it's starting to happen right now. You know, science fiction is becoming reality with, with the huge advances in AI, and essentially, um, all the AI programs to date, you know, use a transformer model, which is very resource intensive. Um, ChatGPT probably costs something where the order of 450 to 500 million just computing power to load that model. Um, the folks at MIT, including uh, uh, Raman Hassani and uh, Danielle Roos, have come up with a with a neural network system that relies less on on kind of transformer server-based architecture, which will cut the cost dramatically to load those models and will be more flexible. It operates more like the human mind with neural network nodes, and it has a lot more explainability than the current kind of brute force transformer model. So it's a very uh, revolutionary approach to this technology. And, and I think badly needed because the compute power could, could eat up, you know, half the power, computing power in the entire United States if all these companies keep loading these models in the way they're doing it today. So it, it is a very environmentally friendly as well. What are the biggest use cases uh, for this technology and what are some of the guardrails as well? It sounds like uh, it's got quite the intellect or the potential intellect that can stem from some of uh, the coding there. Well, you know, these these technologies, uh, there was fear of the Internet when it first came out. There is fear of anything new. Uh, essentially, the technologies, in my opinion, are more tools and very controllable and will have you know human hands on them. Obviously, they can do bad things if, if bad people get get uh, use them for bad purposes, just like anything else. But fundamentally, I don't I don't see them um, uh, creating a dangerous situation, you know, unless humans are, are, are behind it. Um, what they're used for primarily today in the embryonic stages, they can be used to reduce costs uh, and make things more efficient. For, for example, if you want to call in and get information on a product or a service, uh, you can you can do that with AI-based systems today. Um, I think in the future they'll be used more for uh, positive, you know, marketing and uh, revenue generation how to build products, their applications now today, um, which will simplify uh, understanding biotechnology, for example. So huge use cases, uh, uh, Gartner and, and others are predicting multi-trillion dollar markets. That's why valuations are so high and it's such a hot area right now. It's interesting, Steve. JP Morgan's got a slide deck on some of this stuff today. Um, they're looking at a, a worker productivity boom in the next, say, one to three years. But over the longer term, say the next four to eight, a massive reassignment in white-collar jobs. And I wonder which chapter you think is going to be uh, more impactful. Well, I, I, I think it's actually going to be a win-win. Uh, there, there is fear of every new technology. You know, uh, uh, back, back in the days when I was studying accounting at Duke, I used a slide rule. Um, then people were nervous about computers. Uh, HP 12C is coming out and people couldn't do math. Actually, the tools have made people smarter and created more jobs. So uh, McKinsey and folks are, are, are predicting uh, maybe with a, a brief flattening, but but then the AI technologies will create other ancillary jobs around that vertical markets approaches, new marketing approaches. And and so so I think the productivity boom will both create jobs and, 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 and increase the quality of living for everybody. 
What's your take on the valuations right now in the AI investing world? It seemed for most of this year that was the only type of company that could get decent funding at, at high valuations. Do you think that is still the case? And at that level, do you think things are getting a bit ho- overheated? Well, they always get overheated at the beginning of these markets. So I think, you know, uh, on paper, the valuations are very, very high. Um, but it's not dissimilar to the valuations of Google or Uber in the early days of the of the internet boom, um, and they grew into those valuations. So, uh, you know, people have been valuing ChatGPT somewhere in the 80 billion range. Um, people are raising money, you know, on, on initial companies in two, three, four hundred million dollar range, billion dollar range. Why is that? It's because uh, good technologies will penetrate, and it's such a large, large, um, you know, equivalent to the internet itself. It's such a large, large market for the next ten to twenty years. Uh, these the, the companies that win will will have growth for a long, long time, and that's why the valuations are high today of of high quality companies that have a good product. Steve, I hope you'll entertain a, a question about uh, sports salaries. We've been talking a lot about the Dodgers this morning. Obviously, the Celtics are in the conversation as well with Jalen Brown. Can you explain? to viewers how this math works and and what the discussion sounds like when an offer like this is constructed? Well, for the NBA, it's it's reasonably simple. Uh, The NBA uh, has really structured a partnership with the players and uh, about 50 percent of the of the revenues go to the players and 50 percent go to the the ownership uh, groups. Um, And so so it's been a fantastic partnership. So everybody benefits as the NBA expands internationally, uh, league in Africa, um, overseas, Europe. So, so as the revenues go up, the salaries go up. And, and, and so it's kind of a, basically a joint venture between players and the NBA that's been constructed over a number of years to be very positive for both sides. And so the result is uh, the NBA players are, are, are appropriately and very well paid uh, for, for putting on the great show that they do out there. And the, and the league has never been stronger, more stars than ever, and uh, and every game is exciting. It's, it's a very uh, competitively balanced league, and uh, and, and uh, every night you have to go out and play hard to, to try to win a game against anybody in the league now today. Is the calculus any different with MLB? Well, MLB uh, uh, d- d- uh, is, is structured a little bit differently, um, and, 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 and which enables them to actually pay very large amounts for players. Because there, there's an, uh, you know, if people want to invest money in getting players that the team owners, they can invest any amount that that they, they possibly want to invest, and so uh, that salary structure for the key players, uh, you know, really gets gets them very, as you've seen from these contracts, gets them very high high levels. But NBA players are kind of on par with many of them, uh, with a few outliers. Fascinating, Steve Paliuka. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Appreciate it. Great to be here. Thanks, thanks very much, Leslie, Carl. Good to see you. Good to see you. Later this hour, how these falling gas prices are now impacting inflation and what consumers might expect to pay over the holiday weekend. Plus, miss part of the show, Money Movers, is also a podcast. Follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We're back in two minutes. What was my ambition when I was starting out? Survival. I love the word ambition. Ambition is passion. It's a key ingredient of greatness. To me, ambition is being undaunted by the impossible. I'm ambitious for the nation. I'm ambitious for its people. I'm ambitious for my people. My ambition has always been to seek the truth. To learn as much as I possibly could. To make an impact. I believe in dreaming big. I always have. My ambition is to show gratitude. Ambition. (laughs) It's got America written all over it. 
Ambition really is the foundation of capitalism. I wanted to do great things in this country. My ambition is to do very well in business and to take those profits and recycle back in society to try to make the world a better place. Everything can be a reality. I see ambition everywhere. In many ways, ambition, human ambition, is what drives the world. You haven't heard about the McCrispy yet? Well then, you probably haven't heard the sweet silence after the first crispy bite either. Go try it for yourself to hear the best not sound you've ever heard. Welcome back. Checking in on European markets, mostly flat heading into the holiday weekend, but major British economic indicators telling a recessionary tale. UK GDP contracting by 10 basis points in the third quarter, and the country also revised its second quarter numbers, showing no growth, down from a 20 basis point increase in the prior read. Even if a recession is beginning, the consumer is still showing strength. For now, U.K. retail sales posting a major upside surprise in November, and French consumer confidence saw its third consecutive month of gains despite remaining well below its long-term average. So a little different than what we've heard out of Nike and its kind of weakness it's seeing in the region, but nonetheless matches what Jen Niffen was saying about the U.S. consumer. Yeah. Meantime, German house prices down 10 year on year. That's the biggest drop on record. Uh, as we continue to look for signs of recession uh, in Europe. Let's get a news update this morning with Silvana Hanau. Hi, Silvana. Hey, Carl, good morning. Former President Trump pressured two GOP canvassers in Michigan not to certify the 2020 election results in a phone call just days after the election. That's according to a new report from the Detroit News, which cited recordings of the call. And the paper says the recordings were made by someone on the call, which also included Republican National Committee Chairwoman Rona McDaniel, a Michigan native. Another Tesla recall announced today. The company is recalling more than 120,000 vehicles in the U.S. over a risk that doors could unlock during a crash. It affects 2021 to 2023 Model S and Model X. The National Transportation Safety Board said the automaker has released a software update remotely to address the issue. And President Biden is pardoning thousands of people convicted of use and simple possession of marijuana on federal federal lands and the District of Columbia. The White House says this latest round of pardons is part of the plan to rectify racial disparities in the justice system. The president urged governors to take similar steps. Guys, to you. All right. After the break, why Bespoke's Paul Hickey says the market is cheap right now. If you look beyond tech, we'll talk about the sectors he's targeting in a minute. Got some more M&A to close out the year. Bristol Myers buying Karuna Therapeutics $14 billion this morning, paying a 53% premium to its last close, adding a promising experimental schizophrenia drug to its portfolio. Shares of Bristol up on the news, up almost 3% this morning as we are seeing this train in pharma and energy really uh, ride on M&A lately. Uh, riding on M&A and riding at pretty decent premiums, actually, which I don't know if premia, I guess, would be the plural of that, uh, which speaks to just the current dynamic in the market right now. We've 
talking to deal, we've spoken with deal makers who say there's a wide bid ask spread in terms of sellers and buyers, and that's what you got to do to get the deal done, I guess. And cash, as you mentioned earlier on. Mm-hmm. Yes. Despite the financing environment, uh, turning back to the envir- to the markets, our next guest says the positives right now clearly outnumber the negatives, and he expects the rally to continue into 2024. So where might investors look? For opportunity. Joining us now, Bespoke Investment Group co-founder Paul Hickey. Uh, Paul, good to see you. Uh, the the you positives outweighing the negatives. Clearly, we saw that in a lot of the economic data from this morning. Uh, how do you see kind of the setup taking place into 2024? So I, I think when you look at it, uh, you know, the market overall, we have this big focus on headline valuations, uh, the market trading, S&P trading over 20 times earnings. But Again, it's the top 10 stocks account for the lion's share of that valuation premium, trading for over a median of 25 times earnings. Meanwhile, we we blame big tech for the uh, high valuations. Lilly, has a, of the 10 largest stocks in the S&P 500, has the second highest valuation of those top 10. But then when you drill down into the, into the rest of the S&P 490, uh, it's about 17 and a half times earnings. Mid caps are trading a little over 15 times earnings, and small caps in the S&P 600 median earnings multiple is right around 15 times earnings. So the market in that respect is is pretty cheap when you think about it. It's certainly not expensive. So then when we look at on the sectors, when we, we want to compare sectors valuations on the small cap side versus the large cap side, you have consumer discretionary, you have technology, you have financials trading at massive discounts in the small cap index to the large cap index, and even energy and materials also trading at uh, pretty sizable discounts. What about um, in terms of technicals? Because on a relative basis, the market may appear cheap, but a lot of the overbought signals were kind of flashing red lights this week. Do you see, do you put too much stock into those concerns? Yeah, so I I think we certainly have had an enormous run since uh, late the late October lows. Uh, but if you just look at, say, coming into the last week of the year, uh, when you it's historically a strong week for the market. But, you know, we're just looking at it this morning in years when December has been very strong, like it has this year. And uh, when the market's up 20 percent year to date, heading into the final week and two and a half percent month to date, the, uh, the returns during that last week of December have actually been you know, better than the average for all last weeks of December. Um, Wednesday showed us that uh, we can see a pullback at any time here. But I think just when you're taking a step back and looking at the market going ahead, uh, the as, as you said in the intro, the positives here outweigh the negatives. Uh, what we're looking for is a broadening out of the rally. I think a lot of people are looking at that um, and, and expecting that. But where we differ in that view is the fact that if small caps go up, that doesn't mean necessarily well, the large caps have to go down a lot. There's such a, a, a market cap you know, spread between the Russell 2000 and the Magnificent Seven. It's four times, the Magnificent Seven have four times the market cap of the entire Russell 2000. So like, if you look at it like this, you have a baseball and a golf ball. This is the Russell 2000, the golf ball. This is the Magnificent Seven. So a little bit out of the Magnificent Seven can cause a lot in the Russell 2000. So if, for instance, the Magnificent Seven stocks each fell 2%, that would be an 8% rally. Uh, that, that would be the same market cap as an 8% rally in the Russell 2000. So I think in that respect, 
you don't have to see a small decline. You don't have to see a large decline in the mega caps just for the small caps to rally. Mm. Paul, my favorite piece of yours this week was looking at the sell-off midweek and instances in which you have a 52-week high and close down 1%. But then what was more interesting was the forward after that, the 3-9-12 month. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. Like, on the day of these reversals, you, you think, oh, my gosh, this is the end. And, and you know, people, I think it just shows some of the, uh, you know, uncertainty out there. People are still worried. Uh, but when you go forward, every one of those periods when you saw the, the, the over the short term returns, you know, tended to be mixed. But six and 12 months later, you saw returns, positive returns every time and above average returns at that. So uh, the, you make a lot of these reversals in the short term, but in the long term, and you'll, you'll, we'll look back six months from now, and we'll have no idea what caused the sell-off. And I mean, actually, we most, you know, there's really not much consensus on what caused it Wednesday, two days later. So these things are, you know, big ripples in the short term, uh, easily forgettable in the long term. I guess there's good things to be said about that, uh, being ephemeral. Uh, Paul, thank you. Appreciate it. All right. You too. Have a great one. You too, Paul. Still to come this morning, big tech buckling up for some sweeping EU regulations in 24, how some of those new rules may impact stocks. Plus, we'll get a look at some Chinese gaming names tumbling today, and we'll try to explain why when we continue. Insight, analysis, opportunity, a look behind the curtain of what's really driving the market. Money Movers is now online. Follow us on X at Money Movers CNBC. The biggest tech companies in the United States bracing for some sweeping regulations in the EU to go into full effect in the spring. Violations that could result in some hefty fines. Our Steve Kovacs here at Post 9 with more on today's Tech Check. Steve. Hey, guys. Yeah, big tech companies, they're bracing for these sweeping regulations, and they're going to go into full effect next year. Some parts are already in effect right now. We're talking about the Digital Markets Act and the Digital Services Act. This is going to impact all the important tech companies we talk about so much. Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, and Meta. All of those names designated as gatekeepers, meaning they're subject to these new laws. And the most important ones to start in March of 2024. So let me break down some examples of what we can expect to happen here. For Apple and Google, for example, third-party app stores will need to be allowed as defaults or just alternatives on these various platforms. On the meta side and other messaging services like iMessage, they need to be interoperable, meaning you have to be able to talk to each other across those different messaging platforms. Now, there was one report recently saying iMessage could be exempt from those regulations, but we're going to have to wait a few more months to find out if that one's true. And companies like Google and Amazon, well, they can't favor their own products over others. For example, you search for toilet paper on Amazon, it has to show you Charmin or something else instead of just the Amazon brand. Much more, all things opponents to big tech dominance have been asking for. That's the Spotify's and matches of the world. And it goes to the heart of their lucrative business models. High margins in these services, of course. Already seeing this in action with EU's investigation into X, over content moderation around the Israel and Hamas war. Posts on that site. Facebook has also gotten some questions about that as well. Now, the next big question going into 2024 and these laws, how can these big tech companies get around or weaken those rules? There are already some reports about how Apple's thinking of doing that. But look, the punishment is huge. Up to 10% of their global revenue, not just EU revenue, 
10% of global revenue. For example, for Apple, that's you know close to $40 billion. So a lot at stake here if well, they break these rules. What about, what's at stake for these companies to be in compliance? I mean, how big of a deal is it, say, for an Amazon to not have its own product, product favored? Or how big of a deal is it for an Apple to not be you know, having... I think it's the biggest for Apple. It's, I mean, th- they have been fighting tooth and nail to keep their app store system under guard, under protection. We've seen this in the lawsuit with uh, Epic Games. We've seen this in so many different examples. But now the EU has just gone ahead and leapfrogged all those uh, conflicts we've been seeing here in the United States. Now it's it's going to actually take effect. Keep in mind, they don't. Uh, Apple it behooves them to keep the App Store control. They get those high margins. They get a cut of every transaction that happens within those ecosystems. Opening it up just makes it free reign for other companies to come in. Microsoft, by the way, they're eager for this. They want to open up a gaming store on the iPhone, and this is their opportunity to do it in the EU. Steve, stick around. Sure. Let's bring in Anile Patel of The Verge. Talk more about this. Anile, it's great to have you. I've been meaning to check in with you and, and talk about whether, at least on the app store part, you're beginning to see signs of fraying, even though Steve laid out a bunch of different buckets of dispute. Yeah, I think you can see Apple is starting to realize if it doesn't move first, the EU will force it to move. You can see that with USB-C on the iPhone. You can see that with some of the rules around interoperability with iMessage that are coming through. And you can see it pretty soon with the App Store. They've changed some of the billing system rules around the world now in Japan and other places. They're going to change it in the EU. Basically, if Apple doesn't figure out how to make the App Store the next great business in its services line, the EU is going to tear down the business it has. And I think that's a real challenge, but also... If you are looking at all the other companies that should have big businesses on the phone, a pretty big opportunity to see kind of radical growth in, in, in software like we haven't seen in a while in consumer software. How close attention do you think the DOJ is paying attention to the implementation of these rules, especially as it kind of goes on its trust-busting uh, quest in the technology space? Yeah, I know it's Friday afternoon. I don't want to get too philosophical, but bear with me here. (laughs) A lot of the economists I talk to say that we are under, in the middle of what you might call a natural experiment between two kinds of antitrust law. The EU has what was American law before the 1980s. They modeled all of their competition law on our system before the 80s. In the 80s, Reagan was elected. Robert Pork showed up. We changed our antitrust law and we changed the definitions. What you're seeing now with Lena Khan, the FTC, with the DOJ, is an attempt to revert back, right? To bring us back to the, the pre Reagan, pre Bork era. And the EU is just like racing ahead with that game. So I think there's a lot of attention being paid. I don't know that Lena Khan will be successful. I don't know that our DOJ will be successful. But you are in the middle of what is a pretty obvious natural experiment between. What does one system of competition law get you, and what does our system get you? And in the EU, what you're getting is a lot of very consumer-friendly changes around interoperability, around lower switching costs, around more access for big developers to bring lower prices and more choices to your phone. I remember the EU uh, competition regulator telling us last year, maybe, that there was a fusion between EU policy and American policy, although the election is something that might alter some of that trajectory. Yeah, and keep in mind the DOJ, Jonathan Kanner, who's leading this investigation into Apple, they haven't brought their lawsuit yet. We don't, you know, some pe- a lot of people expected that to happen this year. Maybe it happens next week, probably won't. Uh, but look, yes, we are facing an election, and this could easily uh, water down those kind of investigations. But at the same time, you know, it, let's assume Trump is the uh, nominee for the GOP side. 
he's been highly critical of big tech as well. So, I mean, maybe he continues those cases. You know, some of the Google cases that we're seeing play out right now started under the Trump administration. Everyone hates big tech, but for different reasons. It doesn't matter <laughs> what part. Yeah. So we all have to just come together and figure out have how and why we hate them in a different way, I guess. The great circularity yeah. of uh, tech reg. Uh, Neelay, happy holidays. Good to see you, man. Uh, Neelay Patel. Great to see you, as always. And our own Steve Kovac. Thank you both. After the break, gas prices falling every week since October. The impact for consumers and the Fed's inflation fight is next. Don't go away. Welcome back. A lot of travelers hitting the road this weekend for the holidays. What should they expect for gas prices this Christmas and into 24? Joining us this morning, gas buddy head of petroleum analysis, Patrick DeHaan. Uh, Patrick, great to have you, and thank you for all of your hard work this year, especially this fall as we've enjoyed uh, some respite, although we didn't get quite get to levels maybe that some were hoping. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, Carl, we stalled out for the second straight year just above that $3 gallon mark, but that's not stopping tens of thousands of gas stations from seeing gas prices now that are below $3 a gallon. The national average has perked up to three eleven, but again, some of the lowest gas prices just in time for the holidays. Do you see any danger of reverting to highs that we saw uh, late in summer? Uh, not for quite some time, Carl. In fact, I think looking forward to 2024, I don't really see a repeat of the high prices we saw this year, though. There certainly will be the seasonality. Gas prices are going to start going up in mid-February to late February, but still nothing like what we saw this year. And I think some of these low gas prices should stick around through good portions of the winter. So you're not concerned then by uh, some of the reports about attacks in the Red Sea causing diversions of, you know, very popular shipping route contributing to higher costs, say, in the months ahead? I think there's a lot of interest in keeping the stability of the Red Sea. I think the Houthis, uh, certainly in the attacks, there are something to keep an eye on. But I think the market may be overestimating uh, the fallout uh, from what's happening at a time of year that demand for oil and gasoline has been weaker uh, due to the seasonality. So I think that's certainly careful to keep an eye on. But right now, I think the market uh, is uh, overreacting a bit uh, to what's happening there. What does the picture look like for gas prices for airlines, for example? And are consumers seeing a little bit of that benefit this holiday season for those who choose not to drive but instead to fly? Yeah, the, you know, airlines uh, have gotten the benefit of lower jet fuel prices, and we've seen a lot more competition now that kind of Americans have cycled through their avid travel this summer. We're seeing demand slip a little bit uh, when it comes to airlines. In fact, last week, according to the Energy Information Administration, a huge jump in jet fuel inventories. That may be indicative of airlines struggling uh, ahead of the holidays, but they're certainly getting the benefit, uh, the tailwind of jet fuel prices that are far lower than what we've seen in the last couple of years. You mentioned the seasonal weakness in demand. The other big story of the year has been what some would argue is a structural uh, weakness in demand. And I'm wondering, do you attribute that to work from home or people commuting less? And do you think there's a risk of that reverting in 24? Well, Carl, I think that's a great observation. A work from home has been a trend that has continued into the new year, though I'll think, I think there's a lot more pressure to get back into the office, especially for some of these bigger businesses and the banks. Uh, uh, you know, there is pressure uh, to get back. Now, I, I think that is a trend that will continue here in the new year. I think more Americans are going to start getting back into a physical presence. Now, I don't know that everyone's going to go back to a five-day in-office work week, but I think the trends are going to continue to get people back into a physical, uh, physical location. 
At the same time, looking at where we were in 2022, record-setting gasoline and energy prices have really accelerated the transition to EVs. So while we're seeing a little bit more demand as people get back into a physical office, there's more people that have also made the jump over to EVs this past year, although that could slow down in the weeks and months ahead as auto manufacturers now start to see a slowdown in EV adoption due to the low gas prices. Yeah, although even the ICE cars have gotten a lot more efficient over the years, and that, that does work on the margin. Finally, on OPEC solidarity, did it was Angola interesting to you uh, this week, and do you think there's any risk that this disagreement over quotas turns into an all-right uh, internal civil battle? I think that's a really interesting piece here, Carl. Obviously, it took Saudi Arabia and OPEC members a little bit uh, longer to uh, uh, to come to a conclusion at their annual meeting in Angola, essentially paving a road. It's not sizable, I think, in that this, from an oil production standpoint, but from an optic standpoint, to see this dissension leading to uh, Angola walking away from OPEC may be more suggestive that OPEC is going to have a harder time balancing the line in the future with agreements. I mean, look at OPEC. There have been more and more disagreements over the last six months over policy. I think this could risk potentially OPEC ditching the quota cuts that they've been experiencing. And eventually Saudi Arabia is going to get tired of losing market share to the U.S. So I think the risk is that down the road, this could certainly fray OPEC. That would have huge implications uh, on, on global supply. Uh, Patrick, happy holidays to you. Thanks, as always. Thanks, Carl. Take care. Wall Street buzzing about working hours and return to office this morning. The FT reporting in New York, law firm Paul Weiss signing the biggest U.S. office lease in 2023 in Manhattan. 765,000 feet of space on Avenue of the Americas in Midtown. Meanwhile, the CEO of Boston-based Wayfair telling employees to work longer hours. In a memo to staff writing, quote, working long hours, being responsive, blending work and life is not anything to shy away from. There is not a lot of history of laziness being rewarded with success. I have to imagine receiving that right before a holiday. You know, you can imagine some of the employees are out of that's, town That's, that's going to trigger some, that's for sure. Have a great holiday. Uh, thanks, Leslie, as always. Let's get to the judge in the half. You haven't heard about the McCrispy yet? Well then, you probably haven't heard the sweet silence after the first crispy bite either. Go try it for yourself to hear the best not sound you've ever heard.